Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. Inflation has put handcuffs on the Fed. And I am confident that we are headed into uh, a Fed meeting where inflation is still going to be caught 5%. At the same time, that growth has slowed. Maybe we'll be in a recession. And the S&P 500 is down a bunch. And the Fed's going to have to make a choice. And that's going to be a very difficult choice for them to make. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Peter Bookbar. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we've got a lot of really interesting ground to cover. Uh, markets are particularly interesting to pay attention to this week, uh, certainly, and for the last uh, couple months as well. Um, I'd love to just kind of start with your 10,000-foot view of the macro, right? There are just so many things that we could uh, touch on and pull out, right? Obviously, we could focus on the 10-year, what's going on with the dollar, uh, equity markets in general. But like, there's so much stuff going on. I think it would just be helpful to get your your view on how you're contextualizing everything that's going on. So, so what are you really focused on and paying attention to right now? Well, I think the, the bottom line is we're living in a world of higher inflation uh, and the central bank responds to it with uh, monetary tightening and the coincident rise, sharp rise in interest rates. And then the spillover effect on economic activity that over many years has been uh, very addicted to uh, a period of low interest rates and also markets that have been elevated for years uh, with valuation expansion, tight credit spreads, all feeding off a very easy money type environment that has clearly changed. So to me, that's the bottom line here. Uh, and from here on out, we know we have the rise in rates. We know we have the monetary tightening as, 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 as we've seen. Uh, the question is, is now how does the economy unfold from here? On top of all the other global issues like the war and its impact on the European economy, obviously China's approach to COVID and so on. So there's a lot of storms that are sort of coalescing together in this in this sort of perfect storm. Yeah, maybe let's let's um, let's focus on the ten year in general. I know in your latest note you've signaled out three point two four percent, right, as kind of being the the level to watch when it comes to the ten year. Why that particular metric, and then what what should we be expecting if the ten year goes above that level? So that was the closing high tick in the 10-year yield in November 2018, which was the last time the Fed was raising interest rates and shrinking their balance sheet at the same time. And you can also look at the five-year. The five-year topped out at 309 uh, around that same within a, a day or two. Uh, and we're trading now looking at you know, 306, 307. So those are the, no those are the levels that, that I'm watching for. Now, of course, inflation... In November 2018, was about two and a quarter percent versus eight percent now. So there are definitely differences. Uh, the Fed funds rate then was higher than it is today, even though we've priced in more rate hikes now than we did then. Uh, but yeah, that that's from a from a, a technical standpoint. I do think that that's the level we'll be watching, and uh, I do think it's the what will determine the breach of that will be obviously the inflation numbers, but. In analyzing where the 10-year yield is going to go, you, you really have to broaden your analysis past what you think about U.S. growth and inflation and look to see how the BOJ manages yield curve control and how the European Central Bank manages the end of QE and eventual rate hikes there because we're all in this sort of bond bubble together that is now clearly unwinding. Yeah. 
you know, one question that I have for you when we were talking about precipitously rising yields, at least in the U.S., right? I know this is this is a global problem as well. But you know, one of the things that I've been hearing is you know the U.S. has something like thirty trillion dollars worth of sovereign debt, right? And kind of the argument for why yields can't be allowed to rise is well, that would make servicing those debt costs uh, either impossible or just un- unpalatable, right? From a political perspective. So I guess at what level? I guess my my question to you is at what level does that start to kick in or does something like specifically in the bond market kind of break and then Powell's forced to reverse course before that happens? Well, we, we're already seeing things uh, buckle. I don't want to say break, but buckle, at least from a valuation perspective in the frothy parts of the stock market. Mm-hmm. You know, the S&P 500 just near 4,000 and the Nasdaq's down more than 20%. So we've already seen a response uh, to the rise in rates. Now, taking this past that and what level starts to break things. Well, we know that the pace of housing transactions is slowing. So consumers, when you're combining the 20% increase in year-over-year home gains with the rise in mortgage rates, well, consumers are already saying, okay, um, let me wait. Uh, mm. We'll see with autos. Uh, granted, there's a lot of supply issues with, with uh, having enough inventory on a dealer a lot, but you have to believe that consumers are probably going to start responding to record high car prices with now rising funding costs. So it's not a question of do you reach a point, you break and everything falls apart. You, you, you stair step it towards that eventual breakage. You, yeah. I mean, that's how cycles work. They don't go from one end to the other just like that. They progress towards it. And we're already seeing the progression of events and, and, and actions uh, and, and sort of behavior that will eventually get to a point where uh, it becomes painful. The question is, is what level is that is to your real question is and 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 how much of that discomfort and pain will the Fed tolerate as they want to control inflation? And that gets then to, OK, where is the Fed put? Where is it the, the pain point in terms of the labor market that they back off even if inflation gets high? We don't know yet, but I am confident that we are headed into uh, a Fed meeting where inflation is still going to be called at 5 percent. Slower than the eight, but still more than double where they want it to be. At the same time, that growth has slowed. Maybe we'll be in a recession, and the S and P five hundred's down a bunch, and the Fed's going to have to make a choice, and that's going to be a very difficult choice for them to make. It, it does seem like they're in kind of a, a Siller Charybdis type situation here. Can you walk us through, from your perspective, how is the Fed going going to prioritize that decision, right? Because at the one time, it doesn't seem like there's there's never any political appetite really for a recession, is there? But it seems like particularly now, after a really difficult two years, that seems pretty unpalatable. At the same time, I think the Fed has finally woke up and remembered that price stability should even come before. That's the most uh, important mandate that they have out of their dual mandate or you know all of the things that they sort of consider. So you know if we kind of put our ourselves in the shoes of Powell here, how is that decision going to be weighed internally, do you think? Well, first of all, the, the two mandates conflict in, a, in, in terms of, of trying to achieve them both. It, it's, it should have always been price stability. But over the past year plus, two years, when the Fed decided to be the, the, the Ministry of Social Justice, they prioritized the labor market over stable prices. And what did they get? They got a good labor market for you know, an extra million or two people, but unstable prices for 150 million people that were already working. So was that a good trade-off? No. I think Powell learned a lesson of the 1970s, unfortunately only after the fact, that you can't have a healthy economy unless you have stable prices, uh, which as I just said, they turned it upside down. 
So I do think what they should do is continue to focus on on stable prices and getting this inflation story intact, notwithstanding the economic pain around it. But these are also politicians. And there's no doubt that when uh, congressional constituency started to call over the past year and say, hey, my cost of living is going up, what are you going to do about it? And then Joe Manchin actually wrote a letter to Jay Powell saying, hey, we have rising inflation, what are you going to do about it? This is when Powell still thought it was transitory. That's, you know, that was the precursor to the Fed finally waking up to the fact that uh, they were dead wrong, badly wrong on inflation, and now they have to do something about it. So what's going to happen when the unemployment rate, which is at now 3.6%, all of a sudden gets to 5 or 6, and inflation's still at 5, aka stagflation, are the calls coming into Congress going to say, hey, I just lost my job, uh, help me get it back, or is it going to continue to say, my cost of living is rising 5% because that's will then filter into what the Fed does. And keep in mind, while Jay Powell, I think from here is going to go his own way because Biden didn't want him re-nominated. He wanted Brainerd. So he doesn't feel like he uh, owes uh, Biden anything. But the Fed is still filled with a bunch of dubs. So if you were asking me what they would end up choosing, I think they'll end up choosing the employment data and the stock market uh, figures, uh, you know, in terms of returns and where credit spreads are, more so than where they think um, inflation will settle out at uh, when that fork in the road is reached. One concern of mine as well in the environment is, uh, or in the current environment, is that you know when you have these sort of untenable situations and you have people calling in and people being very upset. Uh, the government kind of steps in and tries to alleviate these concerns around rising prices, and they tend to step in and actually make things a lot worse. So the most recent example that I'll kind of give you is, you know, with the rising cost of gas, and you're seeing this rhetoric all over the place, right? Like pain at the pump and all that kind of priming, right, that's going on from politicians. You have, you know, Gavin Newsom in California saying, uh, hey, we're going to essentially subsidize, you know, the purchase of gas, you know, for for residents of California, right, which obviously just makes it easier to buy gas, and the prices continue to go up. And I think that's just one small example. But you're, and you know what, another one, right? Obviously, a big component of CPI's uh, owner owner's equivalent rent, right? So you you start to see uh, calls for more rent control, right, in in major metropolitan areas. So you know, is that something that you've kind of noticed and see? It's almost like the, you know, the government stepping in and kind of making the situation worse. Do you think that's a sort of a concern in these sorts of situations? Well, Michael, that has been going on since the history of time. Yeah. So where, where they, they create bad incentives and then the response to those bad incentives creates another problem that they then try to create a new program to try, try to deal with that consequence. I mean, it's just like the Fed. The Fed does QE and then there's too much liquidity and then that forces them to, cr to create a reverse repo facility. And, 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 and create interest on, on excess reserves to deal with too much. I mean, that, that, that's, that, that's the nature of, unfortunate nature uh, of government, is that it's, it's each incremental fix, while it may come with good intentions, creates its own distortion, that creates its own outcome that's not wanted, that creates its own government program in order to deal with it. So it, it's, um, you know, you look, you look at healthcare, and with good intentions in the 1960s, you know, let, let's provide health care for older people. 
uh, retirees above the age of 65, and then also people that can't afford it, and and and, and Medicaid and and retirees in Medicare. Well, you know, fast forward that 60 years, and the you know the government dominates healthcare, and it's now 70% of the U.S. economy, and costs are still skyrocketing. And there's a new fix to whatever is is broken caused by the previous fix to whatever was broken. Mm. Yeah, I think you could say that I've, I've heard uh, Mark Andreessen make the same argument about education as well, right? No, it all starts from a good place, right? Which is the government steps in, they say, hey, we want our citizens to have better access to education. They subsidize the cost of education, but then they just act as a as a perpetual buyer, right? So universities are free to kind of jack their prices up into, you know, ridiculous. Right. I mean, that's the student loan industry. Right. The government now runs the student loan industry and allows schools to, to jack up the price. And now all of a sudden, the government has a trillion dollar plus portfolio, and now they want to start letting people not Off pay back. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. just, it's, it, again, it's the history of government. Yeah. So how do we get out of this cycle, right? Because it seems like we're at the beginnings of a trend here that's maybe moving in the wrong direction. Uh, I mean, do we just give things back to the free market? I mean, what's the what's the kind of solution to the spiral that it seems like we're headed towards here? Well, big picture, yes, you, you, you hand it back to the free market. Free market, it doesn't always do the right thing, but when it goes the wrong way, it quickly uh, fixes itself. That's mm-hmm. what makes the market. Whereas when a government does, the government's answer to something that's not working is just to do more of it. When the, when the, with the market, when it reaches uh, a, a, a conclusion that they don't want, then they pivot and they go to the right thing. More often not, the right thing is the initial thing, but it, it sort of fixes, it fixes itself where government policy just compounds each thing. And as I said, they do more of what's not working. I mean, get back to monetary policy. Yeah. So you look at, get, this goes back to Greenspan. You know, when, when, they, when Greenspan cut rates to 1% after the tech bubble burst, the Fed funds rate had, had not been that low um, since, I think, the 1930s. And, well, what did that then do? It led to the housing bubble. So not, not learning that lesson, Bernanke then takes rates down to zero in response to the aftermath of, of, of the crash and then does QE. And QE1 was not enough for Ben Bernanke. Then he did QE2. And then QE2 was not enough from Ben Bernanke. Because again, if what you're doing is not working, their mentality is, let's just keep doing more of it. So then we went from QE1 and QE2, that was about $600 billion each, to let's just do QE3 infinity. This has to work. And then you take it one step further with the European Central Bank. Well, cutting rates is good. Let's cut rates to zero. And if cutting rates to zero is so good, Let's just take them negative, and so it, it's and, and and it's the same again with, with with on the fiscal side. It's it's we're not spending enough. We 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 needed to spend more. We didn't do enough. We need to do more. I mean that that's just the problem here. And you know when you say about what when this ends, in a way it's when the market calls it out. Yeah. Uh, this rise in interest rates, inflation has basically caused the government to create a timeout. Uh, you can be sure that this inflation story has helped to kill a lot of spending bills at a conference, build a, a Congress. Build Back Better likely died because of the inflation that we're seeing. Uh, you can be sure that government spending is going to get impacted by now the rising cost of funding. So it's the market that is calling the time out. In a way, it's the market that's taking away an inflation, the printing press of the Fed. So it's that is what fixes it. 
and it doesn't get fixed in a painless way. There's no free lunch here. Uh, it gets fixed in a, in a painful way, but it's an inevitable fix that needs to take place if we want to somehow right this ship. Yeah. Talking about uh, just pushing forward with unsustainable policies, you know, you've kind of got this great framework that I really like where you talk about um, transitioning from a business cycle into a credit cycle, right? And that kind of touches on what we're talking about here. Can you describe what exactly that that means for listeners? Well, this goes back a, a decades with, with Greenspan where, you know, his, his lever uh, to manipulate the economy was to change the cost of capital by mm-hmm. the, with the Fed funds rate and lower it when he thought that the economy was hitting a bumpy road and raise it when he thought that there was risk of overheating. Uh, and, and also having asset prices drive the economic bus and that he was more focused on the S&P 500 than, and, and, and this wealth effect than he was like having the economy grow on a, on a, on a foundation of savings. You know, I learned in college that savings equals investment. Well, now, uh, so, well, central banks have made it, well, easy credit now equals investment. That, that's what they did. They, they, yeah. they said, no reason to, to save that much. We'll, we'll lower the cost of capital and let you purchase that machine today instead of waiting till tomorrow. We'll, allow, we'll lower mortgage rates to allow you to buy that home today with only 5% down instead of saving up for 20% down, that would take you another year or two to do. We'll lower the cost of capital and funding so you can buy the car today instead of saving up money that you can buy it tomorrow. And so therefore, we created a lot of borrowing and we became much more sensitive to the ebbs and flows of monetary policy and the ups and downs of the cost of capital, aka we now have credit cycles instead of normal economic cycles that were driven by uh, inventory adjustments and, uh, and and other more natural uh, economic imbalances that corrected itself rather than depending on where the uh, where interest rates go. What is the consequence of this? Because one one trend that I've kind of noticed over the course of let's let's say ten or fifteen years is it it looks like what central banks are trying to do right with QE and, and other policies like that is um, at least one one output is kind of suppressing volatility, right? And recently, we've kind of had these extreme bouts of volatility as the world has essentially gotten levered to lower and lower interest rates, right? And higher and higher amounts of debt. So, you know, you had obviously 2008 and the world kind of blew up, then you had 2020. And now if you look at the route that's going on in markets today, I mean, this is pretty unprecedented. I think this is the worst opening for the 10-year in a recorded history or since 1787 or some crazy, some crazy year, right? So, I mean, is, is one of the inevitable outcomes of this almost like central banks trying to, to grab onto markets like this increased volatility as, you know, as, as we kind of reach the logical limits of their, their positions? Or is there kind of no end here, right, to what they can do? Well, th- their purpose, and this goes back to Greenspan again, I'll continue to go back to him when he was nicknamed the maestro. Like he was able to <laughs> yeah. just smooth out these economic cycles with his magic touch. Mm-hmm. But that magic, t- that touch was him playing God over the cost of money, that mm-hmm. he knew best where interest rates should be. And his committee around this big mahogany table in Washington, D.C., they knew best where the cost of money should be. And for a period of time, that works. And then it eventually doesn't. And when it eventually doesn't is when you get higher inflation. And that is the environment that we're in now. Because until we have this inflation uh, spike, central banks have had a, a free pass 
to experiment, to do whatever they wanted because uh, the market sort of and the economy gave them that leeway because there was very little inflation. Oh, go tr go print a trillion dollars a year, no problem. Inflation's low. There's no consequence. Oh, go have go leave interest rates at zero for seven years, no problem, no consequence with inflation. But now that we have this higher inflation, that's when this whole modern-day central bank orthodoxy gets called into question. Well, why did they want higher inflation? Why do they want 2%? Why were they pressing so hard to get it? Because why would it automatically stop at 2? Why was inflation asymmetry a good policy where you would tolerate a period of higher inflation above 2% to offset a, lower, a period of lower one? Well, what happens if the upper end starts going well above like we're in now? Well, how's that for symmetry? So I, I think that in a good way right now, where people are finally questioning um, this sort of godlike pre uh, godlike um, um, bending down that the markets have taken to the Fed, thinking that it, it's this incredible uh, institution that does only right. And uh, I think they're one of the most dangerous and economically damaging institutions that this country has ever seen. And just go ask a family, a couple that just got married that are in their late 20s that are trying to buy a house. Well, it's not just, okay, there aren't enough for me to buy and therefore prices are up. No, it's the Fed that has juiced multiple housing booms uh, and have made it unaffordable both from a renter perspective and a homeowner perspective. And they're to blame. And uh, hopefully now is their opportunity to get called out and fully exposed. Because up until this point, they were sort of the wizard behind the curtain. Yeah. And uh, now that curtain is being uh, pulled aside and they're being shown for what they really are. Just a bunch of human beings, again, that tried to play God over interest rates. And, and now that, that experiment has gone awry. I think that's a really... Uh important point that doesn't get brought up enough. I mean, it's kind of like that idea that nobody really cares what's under the hood as long as it's working. But to your point, things are very publicly not working anymore, right? And I, I don't know, I'm sure someone does these sorts of polls. But if you if you even asked how many people in the United States knew about the Federal Reserve, let alone who the chairman was 10 years ago versus today, I would say it's much, much higher today. And obviously, Americans are feeling a tremendous amount of pain right now, right? Pain at the pump, right? As our, as our politicians like to say, but uh, certainly they're seeing their real wages decrease, right? In the face of inflation, uh, you know, a potential recession on the horizon. And I feel like they're going to be looking for a boogeyman or someone to blame, right? And who better than the guy who's been running the money printer, Jerome Powell? <laughs> I don't know. And, and going into the midterm elections and I'm not going to turn it into a political thing. I'm only bringing it up because you know you're going to see a lot of commercials. Mm -hmm. Both sides are going to blast the airwaves with commercials. And at least the Republican side, you know that their commercials are going to be, oh, look, inflation, inflation, inflation. And uh, you know they're going to point their finger at Congress, and I'm sure they're going to point their finger at Jay Powell as well. Now, both parties are to blame. You know, Just as Biden spent a lot of money, Trump spent a lot of money too. In fact, both parties spent $5 trillion over two years. So Congress is, has a lot to blame, too, for the inflation that we're in right now, and that you had $5 trillion of money spent by both parties over two years at the same time that the Fed was financing a lot of it. You, know, that, you, don't, you don't need to take economics 101 to understand that that's going to eventually lead to inflation. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. 
One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. I want to get your thought here, right, as the CPI handle is, you know, gone above eight, right? It's like the highest CPI we've seen since the 1980s. Uh, And, you know, the kind of popular rhetoric that you hear, the narrative is that this is the dollar turning into toilet paper, right? But actually the dollar, especially in the last couple of months, has strengthened pretty precipitously. Uh, I know most folks point to the DXY. I know you have another preferred index that you pay attention to when it comes to the dollar. Can you just kind of explain the dollar's rise in the face of all these challenges and inflation, which should seemingly uh, having it go lower? Well, 70% of DXY is the euro and the yen. Uh, so it's obviously very skewed to those big currencies. And then you throw in the pound, the Swiss franc, I think the Canadian dollar. Um, I like to look at the trade weighted dollar because it, it's a little bit more diversified. And it's what really matters because we, since we trade a lot with Canada and Mexico, well, we should rate the peso and, and the Canadian dollar more than you know we do the, the yen. Right. We do obviously trade with Japan, but we trade a lot more with Canada. So why do we focus more in the yen than the Canadian dollar? Uh, now, the dollar has been obviously very strong, as you point out, but up until a couple of weeks ago, it was really only strong against the euro, the yen, and the pound. We know why it's strong against the euro. Eurozone's probably in a recession, and obviously, uh, with the spike in energy prices and, and the war, it's very easy to explain. Uh, it's strong against the yen because, well, the Bank of Japan has yield curve control of 25 basis points, and their monetary policy is in a different universe than even where the Fed is today. So the dollar strength is pretty much all interest rate differentials. Uh, Now, over the last couple of weeks, it started to rally against other currencies. And up until then, all the commodity currencies were trading much better against the dollar. It was only a few weeks ago that the Brazilian real was at a two-year high against the dollar, that the Mexican peso was at a multi-year high against the dollar, that the Canadian dollar, the Aussie dollar, South African rand, all traded fine against the dollar. It's just when now a lot of correlations are moving to one and everything's selling off that the dollar is now rallying against a bunch of different things. But it's not because the dollar is just this great thing. It's just a lot of interest rate differentials. Now, at some point, I don't know when, you know, we'll shift back to uh, the, the very large and record trade deficit in the U.S., the very high budget deficits that tend to be a drag on the dollar. And that will be sort of a, uh, an, again, at some point, a mitigating influence. But- not yet, but I, I think we have to put the dollar move into perspective. And, and I do, getting to your point about the trade weighted, I, it's very easy for people to say, oh, the dollar's up, the dollar's down. Well, I, I like to get under the hood and see which currencies uh, it, it's up and down against and, and, and be more detailed about that, because sometimes that tells a different story. How much do global central banks pay attention to 
the strength of the dollar, right? Obviously, the vast majority of global trade occur is denominated in US dollars, especially for emerging markets, a strong dollar can be really problematic, right? So it's been and I know when it comes to the dollar, it's not just the the actual level uh, that the DXY is up, it's also the rate of change, which has been pretty fast, I think, by historical standards, at least over the course of the last couple of weeks. So I mean, how closely do you think central banks are kind of monitoring uh, the strength of the dollar? Well, when they all wanted 2% inflation and we were below that, they were all focused on weakening their currencies. It was right. a race to the base. Right. And when the ECB went negative, the euro went from 140 to, to 110. Uh, mm-hmm. We know the yen has weakened with what the Bank of Japan has done. They all want to weaken their currency uh, when they think inflation is too low, nonsensically. Now that inflation is too high, they're all seeing weaker currencies. That is only exaggerating that inflation. And in fact, I saw the Reserve Bank of India today saying that they actually may start to intervene to try to cap the strength in the, uh, I'm sorry, the weakness in the rupee versus the dollar. I mean, even Japan, you have the Bank of Japan that's purposely trying to weaken the yen via their policy, but at the same time, they don't want to weaken. At the same time, the Ministry of Finance says, yeah, keep going with your 2% inflation target, but we don't like the weak yen. So now I think we're at a point where countries are not happy with the strength in the dollar. It obviously has deleterious impacts on uh, balance of payments and and a lot of debt that's denominated in dollars that uh, a lot of foreign countries have, even though a bunch of countries do have offsets and in, in um, dollar reserves, um, so it's not the worst thing, and and and, res- and reserves in their own uh, currency as well. So they're much better off. But it's 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 causing a problem, and it also just adds to the the global tightening of financial conditions that is underway. I, I'm not sure how much you've read into uh, or follow Zoltan Posar um, and kind of some of the work that he's done in this new framework that he's laid out for Bretton Woods Three. Uh, but I want to I want to get your your thoughts on it because you you guys actually both kind of came to the same conclusion about QE, right? And and how how long central banks can kind of play this game of QT and selling off assets, etc. So you know, I, I kind of heard you talk about um, so this is a bit of a leading question, but I'd love to get your thoughts on just the the status of the United States dollar as the reserve currency, especially how sanctions are kind of impacting the role of that, right? Especially the the seizure of, you know, some 400 billion or so from the central bank of Russia, right? So the dollar has had this very privileged role as, you know, the center of the global financial system. You know, do you, how do you see that changing, I guess, over the course of the next, uh, let's say 10 or 20 years? And, and what is the role of like sanctions and just kind of increasing intervention uh, and, and use of the dollar as a, as a tool for foreign policy? Well, I think the dollar will always be a reserve currency. And I say a reserve as opposed to the reserve currency, because uh, I wouldn't be surprised over the next 10 to 20 years that there's a lot more euros being used. There's a lot more Chinese yuan being used and that there are multiple reserve currencies. And to your point about the sanctions that we put on the Russian central bank that essentially froze more than half of their reserves, you have to believe that other central banks are saying, why am I going to hold so many dollars and euros in reserves when the US and and the European Union can confiscate my reserves if they don't like what I'm doing? So it probably freaked out the Chinese, which own more than a trillion US dollars in in, uh, treasuries, or I'm sure it even freaked out the Bank of Japan, uh, where the Japanese are the largest foreign holder of US treasuries holding 1.3 trillion. Why would they not diversify into yuan or into buying more gold or owning other 
currencies like the Canadian dollar, even though, you know, obviously it's much smaller and they can get, they can freeze assets too. All you can do is ask Justin Trudeau. Um, but the point yeah. is, is, is diversifying away from the dollar still being a reserve currency, but just part of, of a group as opposed to being the sole one. Now, most transactions will still take place in the dollar and the dollar will still have its preeminent role, but ever less so when you look out over the next 10 to 20 years, especially if more transactions all of a sudden start taking place in the energy world with you not using dollars. I mean, we became the petrodollar because in the 1970s we agreed to with the Saudis to basically transact mostly in U S dollars when it comes to oil. Well, if all of a sudden the Chinese are going to transact in renminbi, and that all of a sudden incentivized maybe other countries to transact with the Saudis and other currencies. All of a sudden, there's no such thing as a petrodollar anymore. You know, you kind of hear uh, smatterings about this, right? Even before the the fighting broke out in Ukraine, there was a deal that was signed for like a 30-year pipeline between Russia and China that was going to be settled in euros, right? Saudi Arabia, I know they've been making rumblings about this for a long time, but they're also starting to publicly investigate, right? Taking payment for their for their gas in, in, in non-US dollars. You know, you kind of hear these stories. And, you know, one narrative of that is, hey, uh, the, the, the world is really sick of the dollar, the dollar payment system in general, and they're looking for alternative uh, settlement systems. And then the other, the other side of that would never be, yeah, but they've never really done that in any significant size or anything like that. So when you hear those sorts of stories, do you view them as being significant or is it kind of small potatoes and it's really still king dollar and nothing to worry about? Well, I think it's significant in that it's, it's a change in psychology and, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. It happens in, in a progression of events that leads to a, a change that people wake up to. Right. So we're seeing, you know, baby steps of, of things happening that, again, don't equal anything big right now. But if you add this up, if it continues, then all of a sudden it becomes a big deal. And it, this is a, again, a progression of events rather than just one event. Uh, it's a process, not an event, I should say. And that uh, it's going to take place over a long period of time. But again, at least shows you that the winds have changed. We, we potentially, potentially are on the cusp of a, a new world order and getting back to you know, Zoltan's, uh, Bretton Woods 3.0, however you want, he wants to call it or whatever, uh, sanctioning the central bank of Russia definitely was a potentially game changing FX slash, uh, global event. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to agree with you there. And, you know, obviously in, in Zoltan's framework, there's an increased highlight on the importance of commodities, right? You know, he's got this kind of great line, uh, which is really easy to, to conceptualize, which is that you can't print wheat, or barrels of oil, right? So, you know, maybe one, one effect of this, right, especially as the U.S. has kind of frozen its assets abroad, uh, is that the one says, hey, actually, these paper assets might not be as important as we were. <laughs> they didn't, might not have the value that we were ascribing to them. And really, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is we need energy to heat the homes of our citizens. We need food so that people can eat and not starve. And it seems like there might be an, an increase in the importance of commodities, actually, in terms of how uh, even like FX markets work. Well, it would be a new gold standard, but it would be a commodity standard instead of just looking at gold. And, right. and, and that's sort of the, the, the structure that he's talking about us getting towards. And that mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe that, that creates it's, you know, that creates a bunch of different things where currencies are tethered to something. 
But uh, also his point is that, you know, we talk about the world of commodities. A lot of it is, is trade financed. And that if you're buying a bunch of barrels of oil from the Saudis, you're buying a bunch of, um, if the, the Egyptians are buying a bunch of wheat from India, you know, that, 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 that you need trade finance to, to, to finance it, uh, because those are a lot of dollars. So, um, you know, that gets into what he's talking about and how this would be sort of a different world, because what happens if that was financed in non-dollars and that was financed in, in local currency to local currency, you know, you definitely have a different world and, and, and a different value of the U.S. dollar in this new world. I just want to get your thoughts, you know, as, as we kind of move towards the close here on equity markets in general. Maybe we could start with the U.S. equity market in general. Uh, it's been a, definitely a rough uh, start to the year for for stocks as well, particularly some of the higher, uh, you know, the riskier growth tech stocks, right? You've got kind of those pandemic pandemic era darlings, right? Like the Pelotons and the Zooms of the world that have done, in the case of Zoom, a complete round trip to twenty twenty March of 2020 prices. In the case of Peloton, below where they were trading, right? Going into the pandemic, actually. Um, you know, and the indices are starting to slide as well, right? I mean, it's been like six straight weeks of declines, essentially. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts just in general on, I, I know you're, you're a believer in uh, value over growth, right? For the next, uh, uh, certainly foreseeable future, but like walk us kind of through how you're thinking about equity markets in general right now. Well, th- this is the, uh, the most aggressive monetary tightening we've seen in 40 years between rate hikes and uh, QT. And keep in mind, QE was purposely meant to ease financial conditions and raise stock prices. Uh, ben Bernanke told us himself in a Washington Post editorial in November 2010. So, well, if QE was meant to lose stock prices and ease financial conditions, well, QT is going to do the exact opposite. Then you throw in, of course, a very aggressive and rapid increase in interest rates and valuations now all of a sudden matter. And I've always said that valuations don't matter until they do. And it was not so far away from June 2021, after the meme peak in February 2021, when Powell said, we're now thinking about tapering, when all of a sudden that that accelerated the valuation rethink in a lot of these high-flying stocks that then obviously carried over into this year. So we've had this valuation readjustment. But the S&P 500 is still trading at 18 times earnings. And the question now is, can those earnings actually be delivered? If we're going to see what I think is going to be a more pronounced economic slowdown as, as the year progresses, the earnings estimates for the S&P 500 that are currently out there consensus and that people are deriving their peak multiples on, to me, is a pipe dream. So you now have shrinking PE multiples at the, at the same time, you're on the cusp of seeing what I believe will be shrinking e, the E part of that. And that's going to make investing in stocks more difficult. And that's going to make valuations become more important. So when I say value over growth, you know, I know people have been debating this back and forth for God knows how long and growth has done well and value value and why would you do that and grow blah, blah, blah. Well, and value can get cheaper. But the thing about value is that value has low expectations already embedded in it. And in this kind of environment, would I rather be buying a stock with a 12 PE that makes money or a 30 PE stock that, well, maybe not 30 P because they're not making any money. So maybe 12 times sales with no earnings, or would I rather pay 12 times earnings? 
Um, I'd rather pay 12 times earnings right now, even if that growth rate was a little less than the 12 times sales multiple that are being put on uh, other names. Mm. And keep in mind that a lot of stocks are traded at 40 times sales. They didn't make any money. They go to 20 times sales. That's a 50% haircut in the stock. If it then goes to 10 times sales, which is still expensive, that's a 75% haircut in that stock with no change in the fundamentals, just a valuation rethink. I mean, for those that were not trading in March 2000, the stock of Intel and Cisco are still not back to where they were in March 2000. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely brutal. And, uh, you know, the other point is that for many investors, I mean, this this last bull market has lasted something like 13 years. Right. And really, we could be describing the same dynamic that's been occurring since you know, 2000, or if you want to take it all the way back to 1987. So this kind of mentality of just buy the dip and the Fed will come in and, and save things. I mean, that that's what many investors, that's the only regime they've really known for their entire investing careers, which adds kind of an element of human risk. Absolutely. Inflation has put handcuffs on the Fed. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes this investing landscape much different than anything we've seen over the last 40 years. My last question to you is, when and if do you think the Fed reflips the switch to QE? Because the actually the very last note in this uh, in this note from from Zoltan is the Fed will do QE again by summer of 2023. So my question to you is, how long is the current policy of monetary tightening? You know, taking items off the Fed's balance sheet, raising interest rates. How long is that really sustainable before they flip that back to QE, or do you think they will? It, it, things always change when there's a pain point reached that cannot be taken anymore. Mm -hmm. Powell couldn't take the 20% decline in the stock market in the fourth quarter of 2018. Therefore, he pivoted. Uh, Bernanke couldn't take the economic, the, the, the stock market downturn after QE2 ended, and that, that paved the way. And, and the economy wasn't growing fast enough. That paved the way for QE3. So you don't know it until you see it. You don't know it until... The Fed screams mercy, and that's when they pivot because it gets back to the whole Mike Tyson thing. The Fed has a plan of what they want to do, but now they're beginning to get punched in the face. And at what point does it start to hurt that they throw out their original plan out the window? We're headed in that direction. I just don't know when you know that, that full right hook has, been, has fully connected, but it will. Anything, anything that folks should be on, like looking out for, right? What that right hook might look like could be stress in short-term funding markets, could be another fifteen percent in the S and P, maybe at an accelerated rate. Like, what are a couple of things that maybe you're watching? You think that the Fed might be watching in particular? It's going to be a combination of that. It will also be a rise in the unemployment rate uh, that the Fed, mm. of course, focuses on. You know, they got the dual mandate, they'll say, and that if all of a sudden the unemployment rate starts to gap up and Companies are saying, you know what, I need to retrench and not only am I going to limit my hirings, I'm going to start looking at firings, my profit margins are getting squeezed, uh, maybe I can no longer pass on my price pressures onto the consumer, I need to start cutting my labor costs. That, that, that's when, again, that's when the constituency starts to call the Congress people and that's when Jay Powell in his semi-annual testimony starts getting questioned about the labor market uh, as much he does, as he gets a question about inflation. Because... Now, all the questions about to Jay Powell are on inflation. Prior to that is, okay, what are you doing to, to help the jobs market? So it's all going to happen around the same time.
because all this, all these events are happening together because they're all intertwined. You can't separate out monetary policy from the economy. You can't separate out monetary policy from the markets. And you can't separate out the markets from the economy because they all are glued together. And you cannot separate them out. Yeah, very well said. Uh, Peter, I know we're running low on time here. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you or the good work that you do, um, what's the best way for them to get more information, follow you? So if they want to read my daily missives, they can go to bookreport.com, B-O-O-C-K report.com. And I'm also the CIO and a portfolio manager at Leakly, where we are a wealth management firm. And if they want to learn more about us, they can go to bleakly.com and uh, reach out to us. Awesome. All right, Peter. Well, this has been a ton of fun. Definitely given us all a lot to think about. Uh, thanks so much. We'll have to have you back on the show again soon. I appreciate having me on. Thanks so much. 